Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Is 100 the new 80? What to do with your finances if you live much, much longer? Passive funds. They're all very cheap, right? Well, some are and some aren't. And what are the best ways to invest for the school fees? Welcome to The Money Show, the FT's weekly podcast on personal finance and investing. I'm Hugo Greenhouch, the FT's wealth correspondent, and I'll be giving you this week's money news in downloadable form. For most of us, the idea of living to 100 would probably fill us with terror. But more and more of us are likely to receive a telegram from the Queen at some stage in our much later lives. The number of people reaching the age of 100 has quadrupled in the past 30 years, and it's likely to quadruple again by 2035. It seems the team behind the Queen's telegrams has now expanded to seven. But what does it mean for our finances, particularly if you budgeted to live for an additional 25 years in retirement? And what happens if you, or your family, need to pay for social care? I'm joined in the studio now by Lindsay Cook, who's written this week's cover feature on how best to manage your finances in the event of living to 100. Lindsay, thank you for joining us. Now, the main worry, of course, is whether you actually have anything left in your pension. Because of pensions freedoms, which have allowed people to dip into their savings, more than one million pension pots have been accessed. So what can we do to ensure we don't run out of money if we live longer? Well, a lot of the people who have transferred to their money out of their pension have transferred to a fund that allows drawdown. They haven't accessed it to buy the old Ferrari. If they don't need the money immediately, they can bide their time and decide whether drawdown is better for them, probably getting 4% of their fund a year, or whether an annuity currently paying 5.2% at 65 or waiting say till they're 75 and getting 8% from an annuity and maybe by then their health will be not so good so they get an enhanced annuity. It's also, they've got to be very careful that they don't fall foul of the tax system because if they live beyond 75, the government wants a bit of money from them. That's interesting. So if you live after a certain age, what does the government want after 75? Well, it's if you die and you haven't drawn your money, Ah. then they take some of the fund so you really need to start accessing it by the time you are 75 even if you don't take a lot of money out of it but you know you have to look at it people in the southeast who've had better jobs who've had better education are more likely to live longest they may have the funds to to see it through 
the FCA has been talking about possibly having a financial review for people at the age of 75. So they look to the next 25 years because by the time you're 75, you've got more chance of living into your 90s. It's interesting you mentioned the people living in the southeast, and because a large part of this is going to be down to property, isn't it? I mean, a lot of people, however long they live for, treat their, their house as their potential pension. But should we hang on to our houses for longer, do you think, or perhaps give them to our children or grandchildren to reduce the inheritance tax bills? Currently, the average pension pot is worth a lot less than the average house, even in the north and other areas. But the people who can use their homes best are probably in the southeast because they may have a house that is worth way above the inheritance tax limit apart from anything else. They may have children who need to get into the property market and therefore they can. There are new methods of equity release and they're not like the old ones back in the 70s that ripped people off. You can get a fixed rate equity release product. When you're 55, you can borrow 20% of your property. Now, that is in, the interest is rolling up and it's likely to be about 4%, but it is fixed at the outset. So if you borrowed 50,000 over 20 years, that becomes 109,000. But these policies now, you can no longer owe more than the property is worth at the end. It allows people to live in their family homes. It gives them the opportunity to give money to their children. Currently, these schemes will allow you to borrow 600000 against a home. Now, your home's going to be a good £2 million or more if you're borrowing 600000 But there are people in that position where they've got their family home, they love it, their children love it, but their children and their grandchildren are not able to get on the property ladder. So it is a way of giving money over when the children are in need. And it also means their estate is worth less when it comes to inheritance tax at the end. So some are even using it as tax planning. So at both ends, in terms of giving a, a leg up to the kids, the grandkids or what have you, but also in terms of reducing your IHT bill at the other end as well, it both could work quite well. We've, we've got all these statistics, by the way, in the piece that Lindsay's written for the weekend paper. One of the most interesting statistics is that divorce rates are growing amongst the over 80s. So what can you do, what should you do if you find yourself suddenly alone in your old age? I think one of the things is that people get to a certain age and they want to tidy up their estate so that they make a will, they get they get married again possibly, they make a will, they can leave everything tax-free to their new spouse. I think if you are left on your own, you might well look at whether you do want to downsize. You may well, you do need to make a will if you're left on your own. You probably need to set up a power of attorney, but you need to think about inheritance tax. And if you're left on your own, you need to look at how you're going to enjoy those final years. And in a divorce, just because you're in your 80s doesn't mean you don't make sure that everything's divided up so that you can have as comfortable an old age as your spouse. One thing also was interesting about your piece was the the levels of cohabiting that are going up at at that later age as well. Is that becoming more common in terms of people sort of moving in together, kind of doing not quite sort of student share houses in their eighties, but that sort of that sort of setup? I think it's because as you get older, you get wiser. I would say that, wouldn't I? But people don't want to rush into something if they've had an unsuccessful marriage, because a lot of people cohabiting have had a marriage that has failed. But you know, if you're living very old, you if you've had forty or fifty years, you might get tired of your partner. So they may try the relationship, see how it goes, and then be looking at possibly making sure that 
Both of them are financially secure as they go into the last stage of their life. Thanks very much there, Lindsay Cook, and you can read more on how to manage your finances in very, very old age online and the FT Money section this weekend. I'm joined now by Amy Williams, FT Money's investment reporter, who's uncovered a very intriguing wrinkle in the much-discussed active versus passive funds debate. It seems that when it comes to fees, some passive funds, such as trackers, are cheaper than others. And the difference in picking between these funds, which you will typically buy and hold for quite some time, could save you a considerable amount of money. Amy, thanks for joining us. Now, tell us what you found in terms of the differences in prices between passive funds. Well, there's actually a huge difference in price, which is quite surprising because you would expect them all to be charging roughly the same, given that they're doing roughly the same thing. They're all meant to be tracking an index, but if you pick one index, so if we look at FTSE All Share and look at what they're charging... It ranges between 0.1% and 1%. I mean, that's a, it doesn't sound very much. Maybe it doesn't sound very scandalous. But actually, you know, the more expensive ones are charging 10 times as much as the cheaper ones. And actually, I, I'm not sure investors necessarily realise that. Well, well, no, because we all imagine that, you know, tracker funds, they're much cheaper. So you'd imagine well, they're all doing the same job. So they must presumably charge the same fee. But is there any justification for the difference in fees? Not really. I mean, so some of the fund managers I've approached have talked about quite technical issue, which is to do with regulation that came in in 2013, which I've written about in Money, called Retail Distribution Review. And this is about fund managers paying financial advisors or fund platforms like Hargreaves Lansdowne for selling their funds. So when you look at it, some of these funds are quite old funds and they are charging a bit more. But you know, regardless, that might be the reason why the fund managers are saying, oh, well, that's why we're charging so much money on, on these funds. But if you're an investor, you're still paying that and you're still in that fund. And frankly, why be in that fund when you could be paying a tenth of the price? Yes, that does sound like quite a weak answer. But I mean, looking at it more broadly, I mean, is there really a problem, though, with these price differences? I mean, surely they're quite small. All the funds are still charging you less than 1% of your assets per year, surely. Over time, that could make such a huge difference, especially when you think that, okay, so you're probably not just in a FTSE, one FTSE all share passive fund. You probably, or you maybe, got quite a few different passive funds in your portfolio. Maybe you've got a, you know, you're you're the core of your portfolio and passive funds and then some active funds and then some investment trusts and other bits and bobs. So if if you think that you're paying 10 times as much per year over many, many years and across several funds, then actually that could add up to quite a lot of money. It does all build up, doesn't it? And the compounding effect as well is always one thing we, we talk about quite a lot of exactly. money. But, but the regulator has just produced an enormous study into the asset management industry. Is this something they're actually aware of? And what are they doing about it? They are aware of it. So it would be easy to read the 200-page document produced by the city regulator. Well, you say easy, as, but... Yes. As I, as I you know, joyfully have. And to think that they were really, really really angry about actively managed funds and that the you know there's there's a there's a page in there where they um they compare what you might have made over a few years had you invested in a passive fund compared to an active fund and they seem to be saying or they seem to be implying that maybe investing in a passive fund is is better value for money but actually buried in there there you know there is a note saying actually you know we're a bit worried about some of these more expensive passive funds if investors are investing in the more expensive ones then they will be better off moving to the cheaper one i i've also asked the fca earlier this week 
are you looking at this issue? And they said, yes, we are looking at all funds as part of our exercise here, as part of our review of the market. We want to make sure there is good competition and good pricing and value for money for investors in both active and passive funds. So the passive funds are, you know, they're not going to escape the, the, the regulatory scrutiny here. Absolutely right. And I think it's about time the spotlight was shone on the passive funds industry, because we, we always talk about how the active funds are charging, what they're doing and whether it's justified. But this price differential between passive funds is certainly a new thing for us. Mm, definitely, definitely. And actually, a couple of the financial advisors I, I contacted while I was writing this story to ask them what they made of it. Some of them said, oh, well, we're glad you're writing about this because um, you know it's not talked about enough. And other ones were actually quite surprised and they hadn't really thought about it too much themselves. So um, it's, it's, it's definitely worth taking a look at. And if the IFAs don't know, then the general public almost certainly sure. won't. So, yeah. well, thank you very much there to Amy Williamson. You can read more about which passive funds are more expensive than others online and in the FT Money section this weekend. And finally, we turn our attention to that perennial favourite, how to invest wisely to be able to afford the increasing cost of score fees. In our readers' questions this week, we looked at a couple who were fortunate enough to have £250,000 in cash following the sale of two buy-to-let properties. Their question was, how could they grow this money with minimal risk to meet school fees of between £15,000 and £30,000 a year? At that point, we asked the experts. And I'm joined by one of them now, Ben Yearsley of Shaw Financial Planning on the phone. Ben, thanks for joining us. What was your advice for the couple? Well, first of all, the question you have to ask them is, do they want some money left at the end of the school fees period? Because their 250000 just about covers the money they need to, uh, to spend over the next seven or eight years. If you're assuming they want some money left, then they actually need to start investing. So what I suggested to them was to put aside money for the first two to three years of school. It's about £60,000. They've got one child, I think, going next year, and then I think they've got two, uh, another year of one, and then they go up to two school fees in the following year. So the £60,000 takes care of the first roughly three years, and you shouldn't be investing in risky assets, i.e. equities, property, bonds, etc., for anything less than about four to five years as a minimum. So firstly, set that 60000 aside. Do something with that. Put it in premium bonds. Put it in one to two-year savings accounts. Make use of your interest, tax-free interest allowance each year from that. And, and same, premium bonds, other national savings products, low risk, guaranteed but you know those first three years are covered. Well, that's one thing that uh, this couple uh, were were keen to do, wasn't it, to to keep risk low. How should they go about doing that in terms of growing their money, but also keeping a keen eye on the risk level? Yeah, now, this is the... The the two aren't necessarily compatible, because so for the other 190,000, they want it to grow, because they want something left at the end, possibly to cover university fees. But you've got school fees increasing by about 5% per annum, roughly. So, you know, if you want to beat 5% per annum as a return in, in, in markets, then you have to take some risk, unfortunately, and a reasonable amount of risk to get there. Now, they've got the time frame, which is good. They've got the assets there, again, which is good. So it's then a case of picking a suitable portfolio and actually investing that and, and, and actually the mechanics of how to invest it. And one way you can reduce risk, coming back to your question, is by phasing, so you choose your investment portfolio, whether that's bonds, equities, and we can talk about that in a second, property, etc. but phase it into the market. So in other words, you choose your portfolio and go, right, I've got my £190,000 I want to invest, and I'm going to invest 
£20,000 a month or £25,000 a month every month in the same proportion as investments. And what that does, it doesn't reduce your, your risk of the underlying investments, but it reduces your timing risk. And it takes account of markets rising and markets falling, which even over a six-month period, I mean, we saw it last year, the FTSE went from you know, 5,200 in February to 7,000, whatever, in, in, in July, and then back again to about 7,000 by the end of the year at one point. So markets rise and fall, and, and phasing your investment in on a monthly basis helps reduce that timing risk. Which is quite a good uh, form of advice there. But uh, one thing they should also look at, I think you mentioned in the piece, is looking at ISAs and also the question of whether they should be investing in in the UK, investing in companies in the UK, or look to invest outside. What, what, what's best, do you think? So in terms of the ISA, I mean, again, with this amount of money, they should definitely be using their ISA allowance. They're investing for the long term, you know, five years plus typically in, in this case. They should be using their ISA allowance. It gives you tax-free growth, no further tax on dividends, and is the ideal way to invest if you've got a reasonable pot of money. And bear in mind, you, your ISA allowance this year is £20,000 per person, and there's no reason why it shouldn't be the same next year again unless you know, the, the government changed the rules. So first of all, you should definitely use your ISA allowance for, for these kind of investments. In terms of where to invest, so, I'm, so I suggested a portfolio of, of actually mostly overseas investments, so about 60% overseas. And only about 30% in UK equities. And, and why is that? I mean, is, are the opportunities better outside the UK, do you think? Yes, in, in simple terms, they are, I think. You know, we've got Brexit is dominating everything at the moment. And Brexit will be, will, you know, will, will harden people's opinion one way or the way. And it brings opportunities, but it brings threats. So, you know, in equal measures, in my view. But at the moment, you've got a case in the UK, you've got rising inflation, still, you know, 2.6% is the latest inflation figure, and wages aren't growing as quickly. So you're getting a squeeze on the consumer. And lots of the recovery in the UK in the last few years has been consumer-driven. Consumers have been spending money. You look at the debt levels, you know, the, the Bank of England, I think we were out talking about it the other day, you know, the increased debt levels in the UK and lots of credit cards car loans, things like that, all of that points to a tougher time for the consumer and domestic UK stocks. Now, you look at the stock market and fine, it's, you know, the FTSE 100 isn't exactly a barometer of the UK economy. 75, 70% of the earnings or thereabouts come from overseas. So it's very dominated by overseas investment. But I just think for the long term, where's going to make the most money over the next five to 10 years? Is it the UK? I'm not saying the UK is a bad place to invest, and I've still suggested a big proportion of their investment in the UK, but I think you're going to make most money out of Asia, out of emerging markets, out of, dare I say, Europe, actually, as well, and, and some of these other markets. Which been... does come with more risk, as you said earlier, the, in terms of that balance between growth and risk, and obviously growth is, is perhaps more important here than the, than the risk factor. Exactly, and, 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 and the problem is even in the UK, so, I mean, you go to Asia, and yes, it's it's more risky market, and you've got currency exposure and things like that to consider. But then again, the FTSE 100, what's that now but a barometer for sterling? So if sterling rises, the FTSE falls. If sterling falls, the FTSE rises. You know, it's it's not necessarily a barometer of the UK economy. So you could argue that actually, all, unless you're buying small micro-cap UK companies and mid-cap ones possibly, you are buying an international portfolio anyway. And the, the point degree. is, just to bring it back to that, that couple, that if you want to match the, the increase each year in the level of school fees, then you're going to have to well, take on a bit more risk, basically. Yeah, quite simply, yes. You know, 5% a year, you know, 
typical school fee rise, fine. You know, UK equities, they are yielding three and a half. With a bit of inflation, a bit of growth, you can get to probably seven from, from UK. It's touch and go. But, you, you know, you want to have this pot at the end of it, then you do need to take more risk and to be predominantly in equities. And I say, I do think that for the long term, there are better, faster growing regions in the world where you can invest your money if you can accept the higher risk that comes with it. Well, Ben, thank you very much for dialing in. And you can read more about how to invest for the school fees in this weekend's FT Money and online at ft.com forward slash money. That's all from The Money Show this week. If you've got a story you'd like the FT Money team to follow up or a question to post to our team of financial experts, get in touch. Email us at money at ft.com, tweet us at FT Money, or comment on our articles online at ft.com forward slash money. We'll be back next Thursday at the usual time. Goodbye. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.